0: I think 2022 was uh, a compelling year for obesity. You might say it was complicated. On the flip side of that, 2023 has the opportunity to sort of set the tone for the therapeutic area for the rest of the decade.
1: That's Fraser Kansteiner, a staff writer here at Fierce Biotech. Later, we'll hear more from him about what we can expect for the obesity market in 2023. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Stick with us, we've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Humira, the arthritis drug, has a copycat. It's called Amgevita, and it comes from Amgen. Amgevita is the first in a wave of eight total copycats to come throughout this year. As Zoe Becker reports, Amgen put Amgevita at two different price points, one being 55% below Humira's list price and the other At 5% below. But thanks to rebate differences, the more expensive option might end up being more popular with payers. That's what happened two years ago when BioCon and Beatrice put their interchangeable insulin biosimilar, SEMGly, at two vastly different prices. The pricier version came with larger rebates for payers, making the lower price version not as accessible. With more Humira biosimilars on the way, cost savings will be determined by whether the biosimilar options can make it on formularies. Biosimilars Forum is a nonprofit focused on expanding biosimilar access. Its executive director, Julie Reed, told Fierce's Zoe Becker that the forum is very concerned that only a few copycats will get market access because that would hinder competition and savings. The FDA approved a broader indication of Pfizer's breast cancer drug, IBRANTS. This means they're broadening what Pfizer is allowed to market the drug for. And Pfizer announced the news in its fourth quarter earnings report on Tuesday. As Angus Liu reports, the approval was unusual in several ways. First, the FDA actually requested that Pfizer apply for the new indication. Ibrantz was previously approved for postmenopausal women with a certain type of breast cancer and in combination with another drug. The new approval Covers all women, regardless of menopausal status. But to include younger pre and perimenopausal patients, Pfizer didn't run any additional clinical trials. In an email to Fierce Pharma, the FDA pointed to its 2021 guidance on developing drugs for premenopausal women with breast cancer. The guidance says that drugs, like IBRANTS, are likely to have the same efficacy and safety profile in women across menopausal status even in premenopausal women, if they have enough estrogen. Even compared to the best-selling drugs in history, Pfizer's windfall from its COVID vaccine was staggering. The shot raked in sales of $37 billion in 2021 and $38 billion last year. The previous records for sales of a pharma product in one year was about half that. That was AbbVie's Humira, which made $20 billion in 2020. But as Kevin Dunleavy reports, Pfizer's record-breaking days are over. The company expects to make less than $14 billion in vaccine revenue this year. And that's not all. Sales of Pfizer's COVID pill Paxlovid are also destined for a sharp decline from $19 billion in 2022 to $8 billion this year. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said it all adds up to a transitional year for the COVID products. It's also an uncertain year. In the U.S., the shot will soon enter the commercial market with a price tag of up to $130 per dose. Given the ever-changing demand for COVID products, it's hard to say what effect this price change will have. Before we cover more of this week's headlines, let's take a deep dive on a topic that could have a momentous 2023. After a complicated 2022, the new year offers a course correction for the obesity market. Next, we're going to hear from Fierce Pharma staff writer Fraser Kansteiner and managing editor Corita Anderson. They're going to talk about the numerous opportunities ahead in the obesity market, like an expected resupply of Novo Nordisk's blockbuster-in-waiting, Wagovi. They'll also chat about Wagovi's cardiovascular outcomes trial readout and Eli Lilly's potential rival, Tirzepatide. Let's take a listen. So I remember
2: when you first pitched this story idea to me, I was a bit of a Debbie Downer about it. I've just seen obesity R&D go through uh, so many false starts in the last 10, 15 years. I was pretty skeptical of the claims being made, but skepticism is the base of all good journalism. And with that, you convinced me that it was indeed time to evaluate the obesity treatment market.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I do find what's happening in obesity really fascinating right now. And, and my point of reference is a bit more limited, but you know, in, in 2021, uh, with Wegovy, we got the start of you know what we've heard referred to as game changer therapies. Um, you know, just sort of an unprecedented level of, of weight loss with these drugs. Um, and you know, I think 2022 was uh, a compelling year for obesity. You might say it was complicated. On the flip side of that, 2023 has the opportunity to sort of set the tone for the therapeutic area for the rest of the decade. You know, if you just look ahead, there's a couple major events on the horizon. So right up top, there is the projected resupply of Novo Nordisk's uh, Wegovi, uh, which, you know, should offer sort of the first unconstrained look at obesity drug sales after uh, some supply difficulties in, in 2022. You know, we also have a a cardiovascular outcomes trial from Wagovi that's going to read out or expected to read out in the middle of the year. Um, And that could do a lot sort of, you know, showing the uh, extent of the benefit of of these types of drugs and also sort of, you know, making a case for obesity as this gateway disease. And then, of course, we can't forget about Eli Lilly, Mm. whose phase three surmount two data is expected to read out around April. Uh, And their plan was to start a rolling submission. In 2022 and complete the application shortly after that data drop, which uh, again is April. So, you know, essentially what that means is we could potentially have a Terzepatite approval in obesity uh, sometime later this year, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, just depending on how things pan out.
2: Yeah, uh, 2023 uh, this year definitely feels chock full of critical milestones for these obesity drugs and the obesity market as a whole. I think it's worth spending a little moment just on to last year, because like you said, it was an interesting year in and of itself. And, you know, Novo Nordisk's launch of Vigovie, uh it was far from smooth sailing, wasn't it? In fact, what I thought was interesting is that the issues that Novo faced uh, with Vigovy supply in some ways put even more of a spotlight on the obesity treatment market.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what happened in the, the vacuum, you could say, where... Wagovi no longer was, given the the Mm. supply constraint. We really saw, nevertheless, this intense demand for obesity, and not just obesity, but kind of more like aesthetic weight loss drugs as well. And and I'll get into that a bit in just a moment. But certainly, the interest and the momentum is there. We just had this sort of odd supply hitch that kind of obscured the uh, opportunity in store. So you know, going back a bit, Wagovi was approved in June 2021. It's semaglutide. It's the same molecule that underpins Novo's uh, type two diabetes drugs Ozempic and rebelsis. It's just a different dose. Now there was a, a sort of a double whammy of an issue with Rogovi. So early on in the drug's launch in 2021, Novo reported that uh, early demand had outstripped supply, so mm. there was just you know more more demand than they could meet. Uh, and then in December of 2021, right before the end of the year, uh, they reported that one of their contract manufacturers in charge of syringe filling had had an issue with good manufacturing practices. And as a result, that put a supply squeeze on Wagovi that essentially lasted throughout all of 2022. So, during that time, uh, Novo stopped promoting Wagovi and it, it ceased new patient starts. Its emphasis was kind of on maintaining treatment for patients that right. had already started early in 2021. But a few interesting things happened in in the Wagovi vacuum, like I said. So uh, Novo's earlier weight loss drug, Saxenda, or early obesity drug, Saxenda, had sort of an unprecedented second win, you know, something that you just don't ever really see in the pharmaceutical industry. And then You know, the other thing that got tons of mainstream media attention was off-label use of Novo's type 2 diabetes drug Ozempic for, as I mentioned earlier, almost aesthetic weight loss more than, you know, actual treatment for the disease obesity. You know, and the, the phenomenon was in vogue, as in it was literally reported on in the magazine Vogue.
2: Yeah. You know, that, that's exactly it. Like, I feel like 2022 showed us what that opportunity could be. Um, so moving into this year, you mentioned this earlier with Eli Lilly and its upcoming drug. So Nova's got to be on high alert, not just for getting, you know, things together on the supply side, but also market competition. With tirzepatide potentially getting in end of uh, the latter half of next year,
0: yeah. And so that drug has already been approved as Monjaro in type two diabetes. That happened over the past summer. Tirzepatide. Um, now you know it's pretty clear that there's a lot of excitement around obesity. You already alluded to that earlier on. Um, you know, I might almost call it hype. And, you know, in fact, we've seen analysts predict things like obesity being the next blockbuster pharma category, yep. uh, with some, you know, estimating a total market value worth upwards of 50 billion by the end of the decade. But, wow. you know, I, I think that, as we've just said, and in a lot of ways, some of the, the weirdness in 2022 kind of distracted from the, the real opportunity in store for these companies.
2: Yeah, good point. And I love how you wrote in your 2023 forecast piece that, you know, you published in December, that this year offers something of a course correction, like you said, for the obesity market.
0: After Novo's supply constraints in 2022, we got what I would say is a bit of a, a fragmented view of of mm. the sales potential for Wegovy. So. Obesity and weight loss prescribing was split across those who'd managed to get on Wegovy before the supply issues happened, uh, as well as Saxenda. But then again, we can't forget about off-label use of Ozempic and even Manjaro.
2: So, you know, let's flesh out uh, what Wigovi has done. So, what did it actually make in 2022 despite those supply issues? And what are those crazy expectations for this year that we're hearing from analysts?
0: Yeah, so let's, uh, I guess, maybe take a step back from some of the grandiose expectations for the market as a whole. And if we just really look at Wigovi as kind of the trendsetter here. Uh, Novo confirmed over email uh, late last year that Wagovi made 3,742 million Danish kroner over the first nine months of 2022. Now that's about 534 million US dollars. Uh, Next year, analysts at Cowan, who I I spoke to to do this year ahead piece, uh, said that they expected Wagovi's sales would double. So essentially, that means Wagovi is projected to reach the blockbuster sales threshold in 2023. It's supposed to make At least around a billion or so, um, if all goes to plan.
2: So let's talk about Novo's uh, Vigovi relaunch, because you also spoke to head of North American operations, Doug Langer. He told you the company expected all Vigovi strengths to be back available toward the end of last year. But he also caveated that a bit and said it would take a few weeks for the product to be broadly available again in retail pharmacies. And then I remember you writing that when it comes to marketing, Nanga didn't really give you any specifics. Yes, the usual direct to consumer advertising, but he did hint at staffing up at its sales force. And then comes, like we've been saying, the analyst predictions around the relaunch with Cowan predicting that yes, big numbers, but initial return to market, you know, pretty choppy. So. I think one of the things, and you mentioned this in your recap of milestones earlier, but one of the things we will be looking for this year is a, a trial readout from from Novo that, you know, if that trial is successful, it would boost Vigovie's chances.
0: Yeah, so that's their uh, cardiovascular outcomes trial. It's called SELECT, and uh, again, it's supposed to, or it's expected to read out uh, in mid-2023. Uh, essentially, it's it's looking at whether semaglutide or wagovi could uh, reduce the risk of patients having cardiovascular events uh, in, in those who are overweight or obese who had prior cardiovascular disease. We've heard a lot about from the companies developing these drugs about obesity as this gateway disease, and this is sort of an important, I think, facet in the evolving narrative around obesity as a disease. So, you know, I think one thing that's important here is it sort of uh, helps to further that thesis. And then it also just, you know, kind of builds out the case for the benefit to patients these drugs can have um, besides just weight loss alone. You know, I I think one thing that Cowan mentioned is that a positive outcome in Select could convince more doctors to prescribe uh, Wagovi, especially those who maybe are less focused on treating obesity overall. Mm, yeah. Um. And they also suggested it could have a, a pretty strong impact on uh, payer coverage.
2: Yeah, I think those two points are bang on. I do think that if that trial is positive, that will make a big difference. And then you know that will be a leg up that Novo has over Lilly. So let's get into Lilly a, a little bit. Uh, I think Lilly, like you said earlier, it's basically looking to what is it complete its filing probably. Um, After its data readout from its phase three trial. So, while looking at those results, hoping they come out around April, that would put the company on track for a potential approval in the latter half of the year.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in my research for this story and in talking to analysts, I think something that really struck me as interesting is the uh, expectations around Trezepatide and how it's going to sort of flip the dynamics of the obesity market that have currently been set up with Novo Nordisk and Wagovi having the market all to itself at the moment. So, uh, you know, I guess taking a step back real fast, if we just look at a couple of the bigger uh, market predictions, Cowan, for instance, pegged expectations for the overall obesity market uh, by 2030 at $30 billion. But that's just like one of multiple scenarios they've uh, outlined. So there could be an upside where they also see it going as high as $50 billion. Right. And if things fail to pan out, at a base case, uh, mm. Cowan is expecting about $12 billion in collective sales for obesity drugs. Now, where it gets really interesting is uh, again the excitement around trizepatide specifically. So UBS, for instance, in September said that trizepatide could potentially be the biggest drug ever, uh, and they they estimated that it could make around twenty five billion in peak sales, wow. uh, which is quite a bit higher than Wall Street consensus, which is around fifteen billion. Mm. Um, now, you know what's important to note is that right now, again, Wagovi and Innovo have the market sort of all to themselves so so that can definitely play to the company's advantage just sort of as doctors become more used to the drug and sort of familiarize themselves with this new class of weight loss medications
2: yeah I mean certainly you know being first to market definitely has can have its advantages but you know, I, I, the, the interesting thing that caught my eye is that even if Terzapetite does reach the market and does hit those, uh, tw- that $25 billion in peak sales and becomes the biggest drug, Novo itself is creating a whole portfolio of obesity assets. Um, it has, you know, all, one in phase three. And, you know, I think we've counted at least four others. So what that all means for, obesity drug sales is that Cowan expects that by the end of this decade, and correct me if I'm going wrong with these numbers, but Novos Vigovi sales will top seven billion. End of this decade, Lily's trazepatide will surpass it with around eleven billion. Right. But then Novo's full obesity portfolio, if they all come, you know, a chunk of them come to the market, that could bring in some $14.2 billion for Novo. So, I mean, high-popping sales figures and fat checks for those two companies. And then we also have to talk about other companies trying their hand at obesity, R&D as well.
0: Yeah, Amgen is, is probably one of the, the best known uh, of other early stage contenders in obesity. Uh, they had a pretty noteworthy data drop toward the end of uh, 2022. But we should also point out that companies like AstraZeneca and Novartis are also giving uh, obesity R&D a shot as well.
2: Now, I know you spoke to somebody from Amgen too. So tell us how Amgen is looking to position its drug because it definitely does think that it has some key advantages over Vigovi and Terzabatai that even though it's going to be behind uh, Novo and Lilly, it has a chance.
0: Yeah, I spoke with uh, Nariman Anarpoor, Vice President of General Medicine and Global Clinical Development in Amgen. And I thought what was interesting was he made a very similar point to what you said at the top of our discussion, just about sort of a previous dearth of really meaningfully impactful obesity therapies. But he said that now, uh, sort of in light of drugs like Wegovy and potentially terzepatide, that pharma companies have answered the call for more effective obesity therapies. Uh, that said, he he thinks that next up, there's a need for more sophisticated therapies. And of course, the one Amgen is developing uh, is one he advanced as, you know, being a potential candidate that could sort of improve on this this first generation. So Amgen has, has two obesity candidates. It's only uh, really shown off one, which is the antibody peptide conjugate AMG133. And the way that one works is the antibody component binds to the GIP receptor, which is a pathway implicated in obesity. And then there's two GLP-1 peptides bound to the antibody that stimulate the GLP-1 receptor, which is also Wegovy's target. So uh, the way Amgen explained this is that it's essentially slamming the brakes on one pathway, the, the GIP pathway, while hitting the accelerator for the GLP-1 pathway at the same time.
2: Yeah. And then I think another thing that came up is that they're hoping that it has a longer half-life, right? So that would mean less frequent dosing. That can definitely be an advantage. In the end, though, it's important just not to get too swept up in the hype surrounding the market and just see how the data readouts happen and then prescribing behavior and the payer side.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Cowan Cowan even made that point in their 2023 outlook on obesity. Um, You know, in the report that I looked at when I was was writing my own forecast, um, they kind of cautioned that there's just an immense level of hype around obesity and, Mm. you know, it leads to a lot of high risk as well. Right. Um, something else that kind of sticks out to me is just a bit of an unknown is how long patients are expected to to take these drugs and, you know, will their weight yeah. return if they go off them?
2: Right. Yeah, that's, that's a very important point. And indeed, the tough part of assessing chronic medications. I think you've heard me rant about this before, Frasier, but, you know, clinical trials, they love to, industry loves to dub them as long-term studies. And, you know, there's absolutely no long-term study that can fully capture all the nuances and caveats of chronic use. So um, once these drugs hit the market, it's probably when they're going to learn even more about them.
0: Yeah. And again, 2023, hopefully, is the year where we really get a good sense uh, with Wagovi back on the market and, uh, you know, potentially enters appetite approval toward the end of the year.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And now back to the news. Phillips is cutting another 6,000 jobs in an attempt to turn around its steadily declining sales. As Andrea Park reports, the layoff will continue to occur through 2025. When combined with the 4,000 job cuts that Philips announced a quarter ago, the total layoffs amount to about 13% of Philips' global workforce. Philips announced the latest rounds of cuts on Monday in an earnings report that showed a 3% drop in its annual sales. A company press release attributed the slipping sales to several factors, including supply chain constraints, the Russian-Ukraine war, and of course, the infamous Respironics recall. The recall affected 5.5 million CPAP machines and other devices around the world. In a year and a half, it has dented sales and sparked a costly repair-and-replace program. On top of that, it has made Philips the subject of a Department of Justice investigation, dozens of class-action lawsuits, and a possible FDA consent decree, all of which could drum up even more expenses for the company. Researchers have shown that a blood test could potentially spot the hidden signs of Alzheimer's progression, more than three years ahead of a clinical diagnosis. As Connor Hale reports, other tests under development have looked to track down the hallmark proteins that form in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, such as amyloid plaques and tau, among others. But instead, the researchers at King's College London found unique biomarkers linked to the ability of the body to form new brain cells. This research is still very early in the game, so who knows how it will pan out, but the researchers published their early findings in the journal Brain. What the researchers did was interesting. They collected blood samples from 56 European patients with mild cognitive impairment. 36 of those people were eventually diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The team fed the blood samples to brain cells in a lab. They found that the blood from patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's slowed down the lab cells' ability to multiply and grow, especially neurons and cells from the region of the brain associated with memory. The FDA approved just 37 new drugs in 2022, which was more than 10 fewer than any year since 2016. But some of the green lights could carry major impact, such as Lilly's new diabetes drug Munjaro. Bristol Myers Squibb scored big with three key approvals. So did Bluebird with two gene therapy approvals just a month apart. Here is Fierce's Kevin Dunlevy and Eric Saganowski with more.
3: Hey Eric, here we are It's 2023. Do you have your calendar yet? I'm uh, I'm older than you, and I need a big calendar with uh, with big lines in it that I can mark my stuff in, uh, mark my all my appointments. You're younger. You probably do this all online. What's your calendar strategy?
4: Yeah, it's all online, and the year usually starts with JPM, and now we're getting into earnings, so it's usually a busy start of the year.
3: Well, as we switch our calendars out, it's our annual exercise to look back on drug approvals from the previous year. I think the first thing that popped out to me was there were only 37 last year, which uh, considerably less than previous years. The average uh, over the last four years, actually, it was between 48 and 59. Uh, this was the fewest since 2016 and that that was even the 37 came after uh 5 came in the final five final 10 days of december
4: yeah that's that's not a surprise usually the fda cranks it up at the end of the year um but overall you're right there was a noticeable slowdown after a busy 2021 um one explanation that i can put forward is that after the fda's controversial approval of biogen's Adjuhelm, and the drugs failed launch, the agency took a hard look at its own approval procedures. Um, over the last year, we've seen some cases where companies thought they had approvals lined up, but the FDA surprised them by coming back and rejecting their drugs. Akibia's anemia drug, Vodudastat, comes to mind here. Besides that one, another notable rejection came in the spring when the FDA got tough on a cancer drug application from Eli Lilly and his partner, Invent. This re- rejection was more widely expected, however. Yeah. Uh, Kind of on the same thread, over the last year, we've seen FDA advisory committees take a hard look at applications and in some cases vote against those drug candidates. That shouldn't come as a total surprise because it is the job of those independent experts to review drug risks and benefits, but we've still seen regulators getting tougher.
3: Yeah. I think one of the things that makes it hard to determine is the FDA does not publish their complete response letters. So there's really no way of knowing you know, if there were fewer applicants last year, uh, some news outlets try to track these, and there is some indication that the approval rate did drop in 2022. But then again, you know, these things can be just cyclical. Uh, for example, 2015 and 2017, there were 45 and 47 approvals. And the year in between, with no real explanation or reason, there were just 22. So, you know, it, sometimes these can just be a cyclical thing that uh, that just can't be explained.
4: Yeah, and while there were a fewer number of approvals last year, there were several significant ones and some big news items that we saw over the year. Um, Eli Lilly's Munjaro was maybe the most anticipated approval of 2022. This is a type 2 diabetes drug, but it's also creating a stir as an obesity treatment. Um, that follow-on approval could come later this year or early next year. Also, in last year's batch, uh, Genentech's Fabismo for macular degeneration has multi-billion dollar sales potential. And I don't want to miss the approval for Carvicti. This is the CAR T drug from Johnson and Johnson and Legend Biotech. We're continuing to see more and more cell and gene therapies enter the fray over the years.
3: I think, from a company
4: perspective,
3: if you look at it that way, Bristol Myers Squibb really stands out. They had three approvals, which was more than any other company, and all of them have peak sales potential somewhere around five billion, or excuse me, four billion. Uh, And this is really important for the company especially with losing exclusivity of Optivo and Eliquis, two of their biggest sellers. Their three drugs approved were uh, Optilag, a multiple myeloma drug, camzios that's for a genetic condition, a condition of thickening of the heart. And that drug was acquired for myocardia back in 2020 in a sale that was um, for $13 billion. So they're looking smart with that buy. And then the third drug, they had approved this year was sutiktu that's for plaque psoriasis and that's a tough crowded market but uh, in a trial sutiktu topped otezla and that bodes well for uh, for its potential and that's another smart move by bms they sold otezla after picking it up in its acquisition of Cel- Gene back in tw- uh, 2018 so bms saw the potential of this new drug and uh, and really has taken advantage of it now
4: yeah, and aside from, you mentioned BMS, aside from big pharma, we saw some smaller companies get some regulatory wins last year. Uh, this is something we've noticed over the last several years is that instead of selling their late-stage candidates to big pharma companies, a lot of small and mid-sized companies are taking drugs to market themselves. Uh, in this category, we saw Marathi win an FDA approval for Crozati. This is only the second KRAS inhibitor approved after Amgen's Lumicras. Um, This was once thought to be an undruggable target, but now there are two FDA-approved treatments. And in ALS, uh, Amelix was able to win an FDA approval for the first disease-modifying treatment after traveling a tough regulatory path. Um, They previously suffered an FDA delay and even a negative vote from the FDA's advisory committee.
3: One thing we don't want to forget about in the in a different category are biologics, and these, of course, were four gene therapies all for rare diseases. And I imagine I think in the future, every year we're going to see more and more of these just because they're having a better efficacy and improved safety. It was a big year for Bluebird. They had two gene therapies approved a month apart with price tags of 2.8 million and 3 million. But then a few months later CSL Bearing and Unicure came along and they have a gene therapy for hemophilia B that was approved. And they priced it at $3.5 million. That's now the, the uh, most expensive drug in uh, history.
4: Yeah, and that's not a trend that I expect to reverse. We're seeing more and more multi-million dollar drugs. Um, also in the uh, biologic or vaccine space is Moderna. They finally won a full FDA approval for their COVID vaccine. So our listeners need no introduction to that product. <laughs> All
3: right. <laughs> and just to wrap up 2022, Eric, uh, 21 of the 37 new drugs were small molecules. And there were lots of antibodies that, uh, last year. In fact, 30%, which was an all-time high. And that included six monoclonal antibodies and four bispecifics.
4: You got anything else? No, we'll keep t- tracking approvals as the year goes on and look forward to do this again next year. All right. Sounds good.
1: That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hudson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.